Let's open our Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 9, and we left off in at verse 17. We were talking about um, verse 16 there. Jesus mentioned the, the fact that no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse, and neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. You know, I got to thinking about that <clears throat> this last week. And an interesting example of pouring new wine into new wineskins um, was one of the, uh, just a really cool movement of the Spirit of God that took place about 40 years ago, um, it was the Jesus People Movement of the 60s. And um, the fact that we're here and we have this fellowship is a kind of a testimony to that move of God's Spirit because I came to know the Lord through a bunch of people that came to know the Lord through a bunch of people that came to know the Lord through the Jesus People Movement. Um, it was a bunch of beach bums and hippies and, and drug addicts and you name it out on the west coast of the United States. And Pastor Chuck Smith and his wife went down to the beach and used to just watch the hippies because Kay liked to watch them. She just liked to look at them. She began to pray for them and she began to pray for their salvation. And then Pastor Chuck began to reach out to some of the kids and some of the kids got saved, and they started coming to church. And as they started coming to church, um, you know, the, the, the board of that little church, it was about a 25-member church, started freaking out because the kids were coming into church with no shoes on, and their bare feet was soiling the carpet. And so Chuck came to church one day, and there was a sign-up. As you walked into the sanctuary, there was a sign-up that said, No Bare Feet. And Chuck went over and pulled the sign down and took it to one of the board members and says, what's this all about? And he said, well, you know, they're wrecking the carpet. You know, they need to wear shoes. And he said, well, I'll tell you what we can do. We can pull the carpet out and let the kids come in with their bare feet. And, and so finally they said, well, no, no, we don't have to pull the carpet out. But they, they allowed the kids to come in. And what happened was a move of God's spirit because people were willing to, to bend, and they were willing to accept these kids just the way they were and watch God change them from the inside out. Well, then as these kids were getting saved, they started bringing their guitars into church, and they started playing songs that they had written. Listen to this. Listen to this song. Listen to this. So Chuck would let them get up and play their new little song, and then some of them would have to hold the lyric sheet up because they just wrote it that afternoon, and it was just about their love for Jesus. And it was real, and it was true, and it was pure, and it was so simple. But these kids would get up and sing their songs about Jesus and their love for Jesus. And the other churches were all looking on and going, you can't do that. You can't wear blue jeans to church. You can't go into church barefoot. You can't bring a guitar into church. You know what that is? That's God pouring new wine into new wineskins. You can't pour new wine into old wineskins. And that's why great moves of the Spirit of God tend to die out in one or two generations. They tend to die. Because that generation looks at the younger generation coming up and says, you can't do that. You have to use our wineskins. You have to use our, you know, you have to do it this way. We use an organ here, you know, not guitars or whatever. But you see, I started thinking about this and just watching how so many great moves of God died out because people tried to institutionalize them. They tried to make an institution out of it instead of just letting God move in the lives of, of people. And, you know, Jesus here is, is saying this old worn-out religion, you know, it's, it's out. Something new is going on here, and it can't be put in the traditional setting. It, it, it can't. It was, this was blowing their minds. The scribes... And the Pharisees were absolutely mind-blown because they couldn't believe what Jesus was doing. He was eating with tax collectors and sinners, publicans. He was, he was uh, allowing uh, women uh, who had reputations of ill repute 
to come and, and sit at his feet and listen. You know, this is... So before we start in verse 18 tonight, before we start there, I want to jump ahead in this study just a little bit. So I want you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 11. Okay, we're going we're gonna to start tonight with where we left off in verse 18 of chapter 9, but I want to jump over to chapter 11 because this is like... How many of you remember like um, Lassie? Remember, remember the movies, Lassie? And how at the beginning of the movie they'd always show you little clips from the, from the movie so that when you'd get into it, you'd go, oh, wow, I saw that at the beginning. And I, I want to do that tonight because there's something really important that takes place here in the beginning of, of uh, Matthew chapter 11. So go to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 1, okay? And Father, as we, as we open your word tonight, we, we cherish this time. We cherish this time together because we know that every time we get together, Lord, you show us things so far beyond our wildest imaginations. And tonight, Lord, I, I ask that you'd show us some real personal things about ourselves and about you and about our relationship with you. And I pray that this wouldn't be just another Bible study, but that we could come away from here, Lord, closer to you. Closer to you. That's our desire. That's all we desire, Lord, is to be closer to you after this study. And may your Holy Spirit just have your way in us and through us. In Jesus' name. Now, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, chapter 11, verse 1, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, now this is John the Baptist, okay? When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples and he asked him, Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now, as I pondered that, you know, I, I, I thought there's a couple of options here. One is that John was having a lapse of faith in who Jesus was. I'm not so sure about that. I, you know, we all have moments of doubt and we all go through times like that. But, but think about this. He's in prison. John is in prison because of the truth. Because of the truth. He was telling uh, Herod, you know, and, and calling out in public that it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So he's locked away and he's about to be beheaded. I can imagine while Jesus is out doing all these things, John's disciples, it must have been like a hornet's nest. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? Why is John in prison? If he's the forerunner to the Messiah, if he's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make way, make straight the paths of the Lord, what's he doing in prison? What's up with this? So John, because he can't get out and go to Jesus, he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. And I think, you know, after pondering this long and hard, I think it was, maybe he was depressed, maybe he was bummed, but I think for the sake of his disciples, he said, go ask him, just go ask him if he's the Messiah. Are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Because they were expecting the Messiah, okay? You with me? Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied. Now this is to John's disciples. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. That's, that's critical for us to see. So many stumble at Jesus. They stumble at Jesus, who he is. They stumble. But I want you to understand who they're looking for, okay? So before we go back to the text of Matthew chapter 9, I want you to go all the way back in the Old Testament to the prophet Isaiah. Turn back to Isaiah and chapter 61. Why were they looking for someone? Well, if you remember when we went through John's gospel, we went through Mark's gospel, we talked about the 400 silent years between the prophet Malachi and John the Baptist. And it's been a long time. 
but they haven't forgotten what the prophets have said. Look at Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. This is a messianic prophecy. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. Now you know why they were looking for the Messiah. That's pretty good news. So Jesus now is is preaching this gospel of the kingdom and he's telling him the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near. And John says to his disciples, just go ask him. Go ask him if he's the one or, or if we should expect another. And Jesus says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, why would anybody fall away on account of Jesus? Well, the central theme of the New Testament, you might want to jot this down somewhere. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you know this. But if nothing else, make a mental note of this. The central theme of the entire New Testament is Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. That's the central theme of the whole New Testament. Actually, I, I um, get a kind of a charge out of the, the hearing impaired. My wife work, works with the hearing impaired at, at Tri-County, and uh, they have a, a sign in sign language that points to the nail prints in his hands, and they open up a book. That's the sign for Bible. It's the Jesus book. And I believe not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament is the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. You get into the New Testament Gospels and the Messiah is here. You know? But I want you to understand, the New Testament is not about peace. It's not about war. It's not about culture or education. But it's about Jesus being Messiah, Jesus being Lord. Whether you're reading in the Gospels, whether you're reading in the book of Acts, whether you're reading in the epistles, whether you're reading in the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, it's about Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's a central theme. No, he's Savior. He's the Savior of the world. You don't think that causes some people to stumble? Jesus is a stumbling stone. He's the He's the cornerstone. He's the rock that the builders rejected. Okay? Jesus said, blessed is the man who is not offended by me. Blessed is the man that doesn't fall away on account of me, the one that's not offended by me. He's the Savior of the world. There's never been anyone like him ever in the world. He's the Son of God. And whenever I say that, I like to follow that up with, he's the flesh of God. He's God with skin on. He's the son of God. He's the flesh of God. He's the flesh of God dwelling among us. He's God-man. You don't think that causes some people to stumble? Oh, my. Don't you find it amazing that we live in a society that will accept anything? Do you know that I could go into school uh, into the public school system and I could put on a seminar on yoga. You know, I could, I could do seminars on Eastern mysticism. I, could, I can talk about Confucius. I can talk about Buddha. I can talk about Allah. I can talk about Krishna. I can talk about, but talk about Jesus. Why is that? Jesus said, blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. It's it's huge. This is huge. So as we start this, I want you to keep that in mind because John sends his disciples to ask this question of Jesus. Now, look at what happens in John, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 18. This is where we left off last week. While he was saying this, okay, while he was saying what? Well, he was telling them about the new wine having to be put in, new wine skins, and you don't uh, you know, take 
uh, a patch of unshrunk cloth, put it on an old garment. He was saying these things. And after he was saying this, a ruler came to him. Now, in, um, in Luke's gospel and in Mark's gospel, we learn that this is a synagogue ruler. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. His name is Jairus, the synagogue ruler. He comes and he kneels before him and he said, now notice that, that posture. That is a posture of humility and submission. He kneels before the Lord. He knelt before him and he said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. You talk about faith in Jesus. She, this girl's dead, and he says, if you put your hand on her, she'll live. Now, Jesus got up, and he went with them, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Again, what faith? Now you got a, a synagogue ruler, a Jewish man, asking Jesus if he'll come and touch his dead daughter so he can raise her back to life. Now you've got this who they believe was a Gentile woman simply because um, she had this issue of blood and she would, not be allow- she would not be allowed in those crowds. So it's thought that this is a Gentile woman. And for 12 years she has this issue of blood she believes if she can just touch his garment. I can just touch his garment. It's interesting that um, some translations say uh, the hem of his garment because the, the, the hem of the garment, uh, generally there were sewn patterns into the hem of the garment that had to do with heritage and had to do with uh, rank and royalty and, and family and, and so on. I could just touch the edge of his cloak, the hem of his garment, she said to herself. If only I could touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Now, Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. Now, Matthew has this, this account. This account is also found in Mark chapter 5. is the one that's the most full account of the healing of this woman. But Jesus stops the procession. I mean, he's, he's being crowded by these people. He stops the procession. He said, who touched me? And the disciples kind of go, who touched you? What do you mean who touched you? There's throngs of people, and they're all smashing into us. What do you mean who touched you? He said, no, somebody touched me because I felt power leave me. You know, Somebody touched me, and he knew that they touched him for healing. Now, don't think that Jesus asks these questions because he doesn't know the answer. He knew who she was. He knew who touched her. He knew from time and eternity who touched her, who touched him. But he wanted to give this woman the opportunity, and she came forward and said that it was her. But look at Matthew's recorded response. Take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. Now this woman on doctor's, she was out of resources, and she came to the Lord. And that's really really cool because we saw that in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talked about those that were poor in spirit. If you turn back to uh, Matthew chapter 5, one of the first things he says in the Beatitudes there, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that poor in spirit simply means it's, it's the opposite of proud and self-sufficient. It's the opposite. It's when you're empty, when you're needy. And have you noticed that the one who has the greatest need touches Jesus? Not just touches him physically, but touches his heart. Have you noticed that Jesus tends to gravitate toward the people in the room or in the crowd that have the greatest need? No matter who it is, no matter where he is. I love this. Now, you're probably starting to notice that each one of what's called the the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are seeing things from a little bit different angle, recording things a little bit differently. Don't let that trouble you. Um, I guess I guess I would be more troubled if every account was 
word for word, you know, fact for fact. These guys are all recording what they saw, but there's, I, w I don't want to say discrepancies, but they record different parts of the same event. It would be like if three of us were, or four of us were standing on a, on a street corner and saw a car accident, we would obviously see it from all different angles and be observing different things. And, and that's what happens as you look at the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I find it interesting that this to heal his daughter, he's interrupted by this woman who is in desperate need of a healing. And although it doesn't say it doesn't say it here, look at verse 23. It says, When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Now, notice that it doesn't say here, but it does say in Mark's gospel that this girl was 12 years old. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that this woman has this issue of blood for 12 years, and this girl is 12 years old. She's about to be raised from the dead. The other woman was healed of her issue of blood for 12 years. Now, interesting that when this girl was born, this woman's problem started. And I look at the interruption way to Jairus' house, to heal this Jewish woman. When a Gentile woman gets in between them, he takes care of that first and then goes back to healing the Jewish woman. And it's almost like a portrait of the entire history of the world where the Lord starts out dealing with Israel. In fact, we're dealing with this right now in our study in Ezekiel. You know, here we are in Ezekiel, and the Israelites have turned their back on God once again. So he hands them over. First of all, the, the northern tribe of Israel, he hands them over to the Assyrians. And then the southern tribe of Judah, he hands them over to Babylon. And you're in a period of, of history right now where Paul talks about blindness. The, 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 uh, there's scales on the eyes of the Jew in this time period. Not all Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, those that believe in Jesus. But it's interesting to see this. Now, he, he sends these people away. He says, go away. The girl's not dead but asleep. They, they used to hire people to come in and mourn. Hire musicians, hire mourners, come in, and everybody's grieving and wailing. And Jesus says, get, get them out of here. But they laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus. Now, remember what we just read. I know we jumped ahead. It was a little preview. But Jesus said, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me or stumble on account of me. Jesus said, Get these guys out of here. Get these people out of here. The girl's not dead but asleep. They laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went and he took the girl by the hand and she got up. Don't overlook that. That's miraculous. That's miraculous. We're seeing, you know, the dead arise, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured. You know, what do you expect somebody else? If God came in the flesh, would you expect this or what? You know what? What would you expect? News of this spread through all that region. I bet it did. Can you imagine the stories that were going around about Jesus? Now, as Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, there's two things I want you to take note of. If you remember in last week's study, jump over just across the page there to uh, verse 12 of chapter 9. Jesus says, It says, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and he's saying to them, listen, you need to know about mercy. I remember last week I, I told you, I said, go to Luke chapter 15 and see a few vignettes there of, of mercy. Let's just do that for a second. Turn, turn with me uh, to the right, Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. I just want to show you a couple of little vignettes, little parables that Jesus tells Concerning mercy, 
First one is uh, in verse 1 of chapter 15 in Luke. And that's the parable of the lost sheep. Listen to this. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, can you, can you get the, the picture? This is what Jesus was telling them. You guys need to learn about mercy. Listen to this. Then Jesus told them this parable. Some country and go after the lost sheep till he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay? You see why Jesus said, you know, I've come for the sinner and come to save the righteous? Then he says, here's the parable of the lost coin, verse 8. He says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In their sin and come back to the Lord it is the most glorious thing ever. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And then he continued. Here's one more. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set out for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, underline that, when he came to his senses, he said, How many? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother, he, because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now I look at these examples, the mercy of God, And I look at these guys who are looking at the people Jesus is reaching out to and they're going, sinners? He hangs with sinners? And then I understand. They're saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Why son of David? Because the the expected Messiah had to come through the line, through the lineage of David. Had to come. They knew the prophecies. They knew that the Messiah was going to come through the house of David. This was a a calling out. This was a a title for the coming Messiah. And so they're saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Two things they knew. The Messiah is coming, and he's going to be from the house of David. But one thing that they had, even holding above all those facts that they had in their head, 
was that he was going to be merciful. Son of David, be merciful to me. Have mercy on us. And when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked, and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? What if Jesus him to give you discernment? You've been asking him for direction in, in, in some area, or you've been asking him for healing for someone or for someone's salvation. What if Jesus came to you and asked you this question tonight? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? What would your response be? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and he said, according to your faith, it'll be done. It'll be done to you. Now, that's really interesting that Jesus said, by your faith, according to your faith. But he asked them the question, do you really think I can do, you really believe I can do this? They came and said, have mercy on us. We want to see, do you really think I can do this? That's why I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed. I'm so amazed with the faith of a little child. You know, I'm so amazed. I made a surprise visit to my mom, and my mom was hobbling around the house, and she, um, she had a hip that was popped out of joint. And she was walking from one piece of furniture to the next, you know, just hanging on to things. And I, Mom, what's the matter? What's, what, what's wrong? Well, my hip's out. I don't know what to do. Well, how long has it been like this? Well, a couple days couple days you didn't go to the doctor what are you thinking so I'm standing there and Seth walks up and he was like four years old and he said hey grandma she goes yeah Seth he said um do you believe Jesus can heal you and she said well yeah I do Seth and he said no I mean right now you believe Jesus can heal you right now and she said well yeah I do Seth and he said well then let's pray and he put his hand on her hip and started praying and while he was praying it went right into where it was supposed to be. And I, I mean, I was like, I, I freaked. said, prayed for me, you know, and I had sinus infections and stuff. I remember, I remember um, Deanna was praying that my sinuses would go away. I said, don't pray that they go away. Just, you know, I'll need them. I'll need them again. Just, just, just pray that, you know, my headache would go away. My, my sinuses would drain and she began to pray, and while she was praying, this little girl just trusted Jesus, and while she was praying, my sinuses drained. I mean, and just time and time again. Little, and yet we go, oh, well, you know, yeah, I, I know, God, you know, maybe you will, maybe you won't. And No, these guys said, yeah, yes, yes, we do believe you can do this. And he touched their eyes, and he said, according to your faith, it'll be done to you. Now, don't, don't misunderstand this. I'm not talking about faith healers, okay? Because I don't believe in faith healers. I believe in Jesus. And I believe that even when, when somebody prays for somebody and they're healed, it's still Jesus doing the healing. It's still God doing the healing. And I tell you how I know that. Because when Peter and John were in, in the book of Acts, saw this crippled beggar and, and he was asking for alms. And Peter, you know, caught eyesight with him. They, they, they connected, and Peter saw that he had the faith to believe. So he, he said, you know what? Uh, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Stand up and walk. And he took him and he pulled him up, and the guy stood up and walked. Now, the people were so amazed at what happened with Peter and John that they began looking at Peter and John like they were really something. I mean, and, and here's what they said. Men of Israel, why are you looking at us as though we did this thing? You know, it was, it was that by the name of Jesus that this man stands before you whole. So we didn't do this. Now, when was the last time you heard a faith healer say that? And not just take the bow or turn up the spotlight or, you know, start swinging his coat over his head. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? Jesus healed these people, sometimes with a touch, sometimes with a word. Sometimes he didn't even, remember the centurions? Uh, uh, we just read that last week. You know, this Roman centurion's servant just healed him. You know, just go home. He's okay. He's all right. And at that hour, he's healed. Now, 
It says in verse 30 that their sight was restored, and Jesus warned them sternly. This always interests me because he said, see that no one knows about this. And then the next verse, verse 31 says, but they went out and they spread the news about him all over that region. Um, I really don't think that Jesus was doing these miracles for the miracles' sake. John's Gospel records that these... He says, I record these miracles. He said, Jesus did many other miraculous things in the sight of his disciples. But he said, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you'd have life in his name. That was the whole purpose. The whole purpose was to validate God's own word. Okay, So he wasn't doing this for popularity. He wasn't doing it for fame. He wasn't doing it to, to showboat. He even told them, don't. Don't see that no one knows about this. But, you know, how could you help these? Can you imagine if something like this happened in Plainfield? And everybody going, shh, shh, don't say anything. Yeah, right. You know, might as well print it in the Argus to tell somebody not to say anything. But while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. You know, now this is a real dilemma for those that believe that if you're going to cast a demon out of someone, you need to dialogue with them and you need to know the demon's name before you can tell them to leave. That's if you don't if you haven't heard about that, praise the Lord. It's, it's another thing in the in the circles of uh, those that are have deliverance ministries and so on go into this big deal about uh, conversing with these demons and knowing their name before it it, it comes from the uh, the demoniac um, in Gadara, which which said uh, when Jesus said, "What's your name?" and he said, uh, "Our name is Legion, for we are many." That that's where they get this idea that you have to know the demon's name. But if you look at this verse, it says, "While they were going out, a man who was demon possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus." Now there's a problem. If you believe that you have to know the demon's name in order to cast them out, there's a problem because he can't speak. So what's he gonna, how's he going to tell him? That's not true. It just says that, and when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. Okay? Jesus doesn't need to know a demon's name to cast them out. I think that um, there are situations that we as believers don't go looking for. You don't go looking for it. But if you're ever in a situation where um, there's demon possession involved, it's not something that you have to fear um, because Jesus is the authority. You'll see that as we get down here just a little bit. It says, And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Now, it's amazing to me that the emphasis is put on the casting out of demons. It's amazing to me because Jesus just raised a girl from the dead, right? He just gave two guys their sight back, you know? I mean, he, he was doing these miraculous things, but the focus is on when, when a demon was cast out, it was like, we have never seen anything like this in all of Israel. Remember when the... The 70 were sent out. We were just reading this in Luke's Gospel when the 70 were sent out. And uh, Jesus gave them authority over demons, similar to what we're going to read here in chapter 10. But I'm sending out the 12. He sent out the 70. When they came back, they were all excited that even the demons obey us. That was what they were rejoicing about. And Jesus said, no, wait a minute. Don't, you know, if you're going to take joy in something, that's not what you take joy in. You take joy in the fact that your names are written down in heaven. Rejoice in your salvation. Yes, Jesus gives us authority over that, but that's not the precedence. I, I'm, I'm amazed at uh, all the attention that, that that gets these days. You know. And by the way, let me just, let me just say this. You can do a, a side study on this. There is no biblical evidence. There is no scriptural evidence for any believer, any Christian, ever being demon-possessed, ever. There's no evidence of that at all. I don't believe it's possible because I don't think the Holy Spirit and the unholy Spirit can be in the same vessel. You know, there's no way that 
the Holy Spirit and the unholy spirit can indwell the same vessel. It's not, it's not possible. So, but there are some Christian circles that are casting demons out of people every time you turn around, and it's like they're on bungee straps or something because they got to do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day, but there's no biblical evidence of that. But the Pharisees said, no, the crowds are saying nothing like this has ever happened, ever been seen in Israel, but the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Now make a note of that. We're gonna, when we get to uh, chapter 12, this becomes a real issue because when the Pharisees go public with this, when they start calling Jesus out publicly, Jesus changes his, his style of teaching altogether. Up until that point, he's very open. He's doing these miracles publicly. He's very open. He's talking with these people. He's talking with the scribes and with the Pharisees. But if you notice, when we get to chapter 12 and... Um, just take a glance there at, at the, the beginning of that um, chapter. Actually, uh, in verse 22 is kind of where this all starts. Chapter 12, verse 22, it says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, Jesus talks with these guys here at the end of chapter 12. But you notice when he gets into, Matthew gets into chapter 13, Jesus changes his teaching style, starts speaking in parables so that those guys with hard hearts, don't, they just don't get it. When they began to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of the demons, when they went public with that, Jesus changed his whole style of dealing with them. It's interesting to see. So just kind of make a little mental note of that as we're in uh, chapter 9, verse 34. So the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So this is going to come to play, come into play when we get into chapter 12, okay? Now verse 35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. You think he pretty much answers John's question? The question that John sent his disciples to ask Jesus? Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That's cool. That is so cool. Jesus has compassion on the crowds. As as driven as he was, as tired as he was, he has compassion on the crowds. He has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Do you pray that? As a as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, do you pray that? I think that's for us to pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. I think we're supposed to pray that. I think that's one of the things that the Lord wants us to have our attention on. And maybe, maybe you're in a situation where you can't go, but you might be in a situation where you can help someone to go or send someone or be involved, you know. It's amazing to see what God is doing around the world. It's amazing. Now, he called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Picture this. First of all, there's, there's two um, people groups. I really, want you to, I really want you to catch this because... Chapter 10 starts out, and he says he called his 12 disciples. You remember what a disciple is? You remember the definition of a disciple? The, uh, the Greek word is uh, methetes. That's the Greek word, and it means a learner, a pupil, a student. That's the picture of a disciple. It says he called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then in verse 2, it says, these are the names of the 12, what? 
apostles. Notice how they went from disciples to apostles? That's, that's kind of interesting because the definition of a disciple is a learner, a pupil, a student. And epistolos, which is a Greek word, epistolos is a delegate. It's an ambassador of the gospel. It's a commissioner of Christ with power and authority. He actually assigns them and gives them power and authority now to go out and, and listen. I mean, they, they, he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. I want you to know something. When God calls someone, he equips them. He'll never call you to do something and then not equip you. And you might be sitting here thinking, yeah, right, me? God would call me? God would empower me to do something supernatural? Yes, he would. Yes, he would. What's my proof of that? These guys. <laughs> Their names are in here. And when you read who it is, you go, you've got to be kidding. Lord? <laughs> yeah. And he prayed all night before he chose them. This is amazing to me. Turn with me just for a second. We're going to come right back, so put a pen or pencil or something in here in uh, Matthew chapter 10. But turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Got to show you this. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, and in verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. I'm just going to read a few verses here, but I want you to catch this. Brothers, so you know who he's writing to. He's writing to the believers there in Corinth. He says, Brothers, think of what you were, think of, think of what you were when you were called. Alright? Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now let's hold this up to the disciples who became apostles and think about this for a second. Not many of you were wise. Okay, check. By human standards. Not many were influential. Right? Not many were of noble birth. You can go right down the list. None of those. They were, they were simple guys. They were, they were just guys. In fact, when you get into the book of Acts, they were looking at these guys and going, who are these guys who are these unlearned fishermen? Who are these guys? But the Bible says in Acts, it says that they noticed, they perceived that they'd spent time with Jesus. So there's something going on here. Jesus is enabling these guys. And listen to what it says. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You know who he's talking about? Look around this room. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about us. He's talking about the believers. He's talking about the saints in Corinth here. He says he chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's why. God doesn't want us to be able to boast before him. We talked about that when we were last week when we were in the, um, the Beatitudes, when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount. What was Jesus trying to convey there? He was saying, if you've had a true encounter with the true God, you're not going to be full of pride. You're not going to be walking around puffing your chest out saying, look what I'm doing can't do that. If you just read on there, it says, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Understand this. If we're redeemed, if we're righteous, if we're holy, it's because of Christ, not because of us. Okay. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That's what it comes down to. So here we are. Jesus says, he calls his 12 disciples. He gives them the authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. 
James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Now picture this. This is, how, this is what Jesus gives them to go on. He says, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any of the town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of cold. No, it wasn't that they weren't going to eventually go to the rest of the world, but he wanted them to go to the lost house of Israel first. Remember in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it talks about to the Jew first, to the Jew first, and to the Gentile. There's an interesting verse in, in John chapter 10, where um, I think that's also verse 16. Um, yeah, John 10, 16. Jesus is, remember that John chapter 10 is the chapter that aren't of this fold. Okay, that's not the Mormons, despite what their commercials say. You ever notice how they focus in on that one scripture? Uh, Jesus has other sheep. You know, it's not the Mormons. It's the Gentiles. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. But he says, we're going to go out. We're going to round them up. There's going to be one shepherd, one fold. He's talking about the church. But it's interesting here. He says, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And, and it wasn't until after the resurrection. Remember when Jesus, in fact, at the end of Matthew's gospel, the final chapter, he gives them the great commission, go unto all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, not just the Jews, Jews and Gentiles alike. So I mean, he, they do get around to that, but he says, as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus wanted them to have a sense of urgency. Cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Now that's amazing. He takes these disciples, turns them into apostles, makes them ambassadors, makes them envoys, empowers them to do these things. Now they're delegates, they're, they're commissioners of Christ with this power and authority, and he sends them out to do these things. He says, do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or an extra tunic or sandals or staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Now, interesting, Jesus wants us to depend on God. Don't worry about this stuff. Don't worry about taking all this extra stuff with you. Travel light. Travel light. God guides. God provides. It's a simple principle. God's guiding, he's providing. What, as soon as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. And I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. You see, Jesus tells them, a little bit later he tells them, if, they're, if they reject you, they're re they reject me. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. The rejection of God's message brings judgment. There's no way around it. We see it in the prophets. We see it in our study in Ezekiel on Sunday mornings right now. Ezekiel was told to go to these people. He said these people are going to be stiff-necked, hard-hearted. They're going to be obstinate. You're not going to be able to get through to them. Tell them anyway. You deliver wolves. Whoa. That's a scary thought. Because sheep don't generally win when they, when they go out among wolves. This is a little different situation because the Lord has empowered them. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be as, as uh, wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. I love the honesty of Jesus, don't you? He didn't paint a rosy picture for him. He didn't say, ah, you're going to go out there and don't worry about it. You know, He said, no, you need to be shrewd. You need to be wise. You need to be careful. Because you're walking among, among wolves. You get into pa Paul's uh, writings. You listen to some of the things that he said, some of the things he told the Ephesian church. He said, when I leave here, savage wolves are going to come in and devour the flock. I'd be saying about he said, no. He says, I'm going to leave, and savage wolves are going to come in and devour the flock. But the Lord told us, look at verse 17, be on your guard against men 
They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will be not you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I love that. You don't even need a lawyer. When you're walking in the Spirit of God and you find yourself in one of those situations where you don't even know what to say, and, and many of you have been there. I mean, you've been there. How about when you're witnessing to somebody and you don't even know what to say and all of a sudden these scriptures come to mind and you're sharing these things you didn't even know you knew? Where's that? Where'd that come from? Or you say something that they don't think you know because you don't about them personally and you're talking with them and they're like, how did you know that? Well, I don't know how I knew that, but, you know, here. And God will give you the words. He's telling them. You need to totally lean on God. Lean on God. It's going to get bad, Jesus said. Verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. You ever notice that some of the most bitter persecution comes from your own family? Man, that's, that's, that's harsh. He says men are going to hate you. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I believe, as we're reading all these things, I mean, we saw some of this stuff in the book of Acts, some of the, you know, being brought before magistrates and stuff like that. But I think much of what Jesus is referring to here has to do with the second coming. And the reason I say that is because I believe that the gospel will be preached to the Jew right up until the time when the Lord comes back for them. In fact, there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will be tucked away. I think this is an indication that the gospel will be preached to the Jew right up to the second coming. It's obvious that Jesus didn't mean that you know, before he returned, they were going to be done preaching this. No. Then he goes on to say, a student is not above his teacher. What's Jesus pointing to here? Well, think about the crucifixion. Think about the scourging in the crucifixion. If they did that to our master, what are they going to do to us? That's what Jesus is telling them. A student's not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more are the members of his household? And this is a reference to what we just read back in verse 34 of chapter 9. The Pharisees said it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Again, we're going to get into that in chapter 12. If they call me that, what are they going to call you? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. Did you know that? I think a, a, a great study at this point for all of us would be one day this week, just in a devotional or whatever, check out Psalm 139. Just read through that psalm. It's incredible. Not one sparrow will fall apart from God knowing about it, about His will. I mean, and then he says, Verse 30, and even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Some of us are getting a little easier to count than others. but So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Hmm. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
Now, some look at this as a contradiction in Scripture. I don't see this as a contradiction at all. I see this as another side of the personality of God himself. I don't think that God is a God that never gets angry because the Bible doesn't teach that. He's called the Prince of Peace. How can he say that he's not coming to bring peace? Well, what does truth do? Truth divides, doesn't it? Some people are on the side of truth and some are not. Listen to how he explains this. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That's actually taken from uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 6. It's actually a quotation. Jesus is quoting the prophet Micah. And Micah is talking about the time of the coming Messiah. Study that out. Just make a little note of that. Micah 7. And read that chapter. He's talking about the time of God's coming to you. Here he is in the flesh. Jesus in the flesh. And he's saying these things. This should have been an indication for those that were studying the scriptures. Hey, go back and check it out. Now anyone who loves his father or his mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, once again, let me just say, this cross is not some burden or some, oh, you know, something you have to carry through your life. That would be a thorn in the flesh like Paul had. The cross, the taking of your cross in Jesus' day meant no negotiations, no compromise, no deals, no looking back. You understand? It meant death. There was one reason for taking up your cross in Jesus' day. If you were carrying a cross, you were going to die. You were going to be executed. What does that mean? Jesus wants us all dead? No, here's the thing. You have one hope. When you're on your way to die, you have one hope. What is it? Well, it's the resurrection and the life. That's what Jesus wants. He wants us living for the resurrection and the life, not for this life. Now, this will make more sense to you. When you, when you understand the cross in that context, that there's one reason for carrying a cross, and it's death, then listen to the rest of what he says, and it makes perfect sense. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does he mean? Well, there's one of two choices. You can live for this life or you can live for eternity. What's it going to be? And then he says to them, remember, what's the deal here? He's sending out the 12 and he says, he who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Isn't that cool? What a deal. Not a bad deal. The Lord is calling us to put our hope in him. Remember what he told Mary and Martha? He told them, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. He is our hope. So as you look to Jesus, and then we came full circle, didn't we, to this after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And then we read those verses about John. And that's what we're going to take up next week. John's disciples coming to Jesus. Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one, Lord? Or should we expect another? Should we look for another? What do you think? What do you think tonight as we close our Bibles? Was he the one? <laughs> I think so. I think so. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised. What else is there? He's God manifest in the flesh. He's the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. Let's pray.
Father, this is so cool to see that you care so much for us, that you'd seek us out in a crowd, that you'd ask us to to come and to hear of you, to learn of you, to grow in your grace and the knowledge of your Son, Jesus. And we're honored, Father, to be here. We're honored to read these things tonight, how you impact these lives. And Lord, even though we haven't seen you, even though we haven't touched you, we know that we've touched your hearts, your heart, and you've touched ours. And Lord, I thank you that you desire to walk with us, to dwell in us, to live in us, and and to flow through us by your Spirit. And God, I pray that you continue to do that. We lift up those, Lord, that you've shown us are in desperate need of a touch from you. I pray for your anointing now, just like you anointed these 12, Lord, to be strong and courageous and to go out with the message that you've given us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to just point to Jesus and then to watch what you do and give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.